Now, we move this morning to Daniel chapter 7, because we are taking a, an, an unusual, for lack of a better term, an unusual approach to our Advent series. Unusual because, well, we're technically not bound by any real historical tradition, because as we discovered last week, there is no real historical tradition. It's kind of all over the map. What we are left with is a foundation on which to build that focuses on the future advent of the Christ, and it looks back to his first. And so we come this morning to a a vision in Daniel in order to emphasize this week's theme. So let's read from chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Daniel 7 and verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks be to God. Lord, we stand in honor of your word. We come to it looking not merely for information, not for history, not even for words of wisdom while it contains all of that and more. We come to your word because we recognize that as the disciples said to Jesus, where else would we go? For you alone have the words of life. Father, these are your words of life. May we feast on them this morning. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It was the Scottish poet Robert Burns who first penned a version of the famous phrase, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. The phrase was popularized by the 1937 novel of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. But it originates with this Scot, and he used some other crazy old Scottish words The idea is simple. Um, No matter how carefully plans are made, something always seems to go awry. The Gompers experienced this intimately this past weekend. We hosted in our house the second annual Gompers Family Gingerbread Competition. Um, What we do is we pair up, um, mom leaves, (laughs) uh, and we destroy the house with gingerbread and cookies and icing. No, we, we pair up, and we, we secretly construct our best gingerbread house ideas. The submissions are then posted onto the internets, and somehow our friends and our family vote for their favorite. Last year, Pay and I won with a battle scene complete with, um, like, decapitated Keebler elves, you know, and a Twizzler cannon 
it was obviously amazing um, because we won. This year's winner was Ava and Luke with her immaculate and impressive um, Christmas chapel. Many of you voted, many of you saw it. Um, it was something else. Um, Ava opted not to use a pre-made gingerbread house kit, but instead to um, learn how to and bake her own gingerbread after a pattern that she uh, drew up and cut out on paper first and made all these plans ahead of time with Luke. Uh, she even made the stained glass out of crushed jolly, no, lifesavers, crushed up lifesavers that were then melted in the oven. Um, stained glass windows on this thing. It was something. Um, but as the timer ticked down towards the end of the competition, the main panel for the chapel, like, snapped in half. It was this, this beautiful front door outline with a stained glass window above it. And she was scrambling to figure out what to do. So if you voted and if you saw this thing on the internets, uh, then what you saw was the, the backside of the chapel. You might notice there's no door. <laughs> it's like, don't come in, you know. <laughs> Behold, I stand at the wall and knock. Will you build me a door, <laughs> right? And then shortly after the picture was taken, the whole thing collapsed in on itself. Even right now as we speak, it's, it's just like a pile of panels and icing on our kitchen table. Truly, the best laid plans of mice and young bakers often go awry, right? Well, God has devised a plan to save his people. It was neither haphazard nor wishful thinking. The fate of the human race was not left to chance. And our fall into sin was not a surprise to him. Instead, a divine design has been being executed since before the inception of the world. The linchpin of this design is known as the incarnation. As such, Jesus is given the name Emmanuel, God with us. So central to God's plan of salvation is the incarnation that you could rightly say, if Jesus is not truly God and truly man, the entire hope of Christian salvation breaks apart at the seams. Listen to the way 16th century Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli speaks of the incarnation. God the creator of the universe, made man not only that there might be an image copy of himself, so that's Adam and Eve, you and I, right? But that from among the creatures made from the earth, there might be one to enjoy God through fellowship and friendship here, image copy, fellowship and friendship, and through possession, most intimate contact in the hereafter also. Image copy, friendship and fellowship here, intimate contact in the hereafter. Also, God made man, okay? Also, that he might foreshadow in a sense that intimate communication with the world 
into which he was going to enter through his son. Now, I know there's a lot of words, but according to Zwingli there, the creation of man and woman is itself a giant arrow pointing to the way that God would most poignantly, intimately communicate with mankind. Namely, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And while the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry, those made by Almighty God are surely fulfilled. Well, this, if nothing else, points to some impressive preparation on the part of God in eternity past. And so we are brought to our theme on this second Sunday of Advent, preparation. Preparation revealed to us specifically through prophecy. For this, we are compelled to consider Daniel's vision of the arrival of the Messiah. So if you're taking notes, let's consider number one, Israel preparing for Messiah. Israel preparing for Messiah. In order to appreciate this, we have, to, we have to take our minds, if you will, and transport ourselves back in time, back before America was an idea, back before the Reformation, before the, 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 the corruption of the church that necessitated the Protestant Reformation, before the third century when Constantine maybe became a Christian and made Christianity the legal religion of the Roman Empire, before 300 years earlier when Jesus was born in the flesh, before Nehemiah rebuilt the walls in Jerusalem, before Zerubbabel and Ezra rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, we got to go back to even before the temple was destroyed, we go back to, no, not before the temple was destroyed, but, but before it was rebuilt, after it was destroyed. And there we are with a young man, probably now an old man, Daniel, in the capital city of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel had been taken captive in the conquering of the southern kingdom of Judah, the last holdout of free Israelites in the ancient world. Here, Daniel, a captive of this foreign empire, I think it's about 600 miles to the east of Jerusalem, there he is, and he has another vision. He sees two figures, one called the Ancient of Days, this is the father on the throne, and approaching him is the Son of Man, an obvious reference to the Jewish Messiah. In the vision, the Son of Man to him is given dominion, authority, and a kingdom made up of all peoples and nations, a kingdom that will last forever. Pretty straightforward. Critically, this vision comes in the middle of another vision where four beasts represent four successive human governments. So hold on, because we're going, we're, we're whittling into it. So don't, don't like wander off thinking about like 
lunch or anything, okay? In the middle of this vision about four beasts that represents four successive human governments, Daniel has this vision about this ancient of days and the son of man and this eternal kingdom. The four human governments represented in this vision of Daniel are that of Babylon, which would give way to the Medes and the Persians. They'd be conquered through Cyrus the Great, who would then later on be conquered by the Greeks at the helm was Alexander the Great, right? And then, of course, if we know our, you know, our Bible history, then we know the Romans then conquered the Greeks, and it was into the Roman Empire that Jesus' story on earth begins. Only at the end of that long history, James Montgomery Boyce writes, which God was controlling, would there come an eternal kingdom that, like a rock, would destroy the other kingdoms, grow to be a mountain, and fill the earth. Four successive kingdoms, they will fall, 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 and then this son of man is awarded a kingdom that conquers or is, if you will, over the whole of the earth that will last forever. This is a vision about how the kingdoms of the earth are judged. They rise, they fall. America right now, we, we are the, the greatest, most wealthy, most militarily powerful nation in the history of the world. And we might survey our submarines and our aircraft carriers and our airplanes and, and all of our you know, outposts around the world. And we might be tempted to say like they did in Rome so many hundreds of years ago, the sun will never set on the American empire. We might be tempted to think that. And yet America is about the same age as most other great world powers right when they began to crumble. Yeah. Nations rise, nations fall. One beast, next beast, next beast, next beast. Four beasts cover the span of something like 600 years in human history. At the peak of the vision, where the reader might think that God the Father was going to introduce his everlasting dominion over all of creation, suddenly this Son of Man approaches the throne and to him is given all authority. A unique kingdom. Human kingdoms rise and fall, this kingdom will not. Whose kingdom in it? Is it? It's got to be God's. No, it's the Son of Man's. It's a very unique and unusually fascinating passage because it presents Jesus in a way found nowhere else in the Old Testament. It is the most blatant and obvious distinction between the Father and the Son in Old Testament prophecy. Nowhere else is the Messiah so clearly foreshadowed as a conquering king and as having absolute authority. In fact, Calvin remarks that the Jews, even as they reject Jesus, they cannot deny that this text is about the Messiah. 
the objective for us in this little history lesson is threefold. Firstly, let us see with our own eyes that the notion of the triune Godhead is not a New Testament fabrication nor a church fable. The notion of the triune Godhead is not a New Testament fabrication nor is it a church fable. It is written into the holy Old Testament scriptures of God. Here is an undisputable and clear distinction between Father and Son, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, awarded all authority. Secondly, let us marvel at the description of his absolute authority. Let's just read it again, verse 14. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And just in case you didn't get it the first time when I said it was everlasting, I'll let you, I'll, I'll say it again, if you will, which shall not pass away. And in case you didn't understand that it being everlasting and it not being able to pass away, I'll say this, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. You think he's making a point there, didn't you? I feel like it would be sufficient to say it's everlasting. I get it. Everlasting means has no end. He's like, no. You know what I mean? That's a marvelous description. It is absolute. There is no question. No one would come to that text of scripture with any level of intellectual honesty and think that the kingdom being described here might have an end date. You wouldn't possibly do it. Now, it was this that Satan offered to Jesus. Worship me and I'll give you this. I'll give you the nations of the world. Of course, Jesus, you know, quoted scripture and rebuffed the offer. Because in the vision, Satan doesn't give this authority to the Son of Man. It comes from the hand of the Ancient of Days. It is this authority that the resurrected Jesus uses as the backdrop to his great commission. He doesn't just say, all right, I'm alive, go tell everyone. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, you see, if you will, he says, like Daniel prophesied, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you have nothing to fear. Nothing can stop you. Nothing can defeat you. So go make disciples like that. Well, that changes things, doesn't it? We have a, a value here at Hillcrest. We, we want to be disciple makers. We want to not just ask people to gather in a building and listen to some questionable music and some okay teaching. No, we want, we want to make, no, make full disciples of Christ, right? Full learners, which means we are always learning, and that means as learners, we are always investing in other learners, and the cycle goes, and it never stops. If we are idle in our faith, we are not disciple-making, and so comes this, this, this edict, if you will, from the pulpit. Make disciples, right? Thou shalt make disciples. 
Or, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to our Savior. Nothing can stop you. Nothing can harm you. Nothing can defeat you. So go make disciples. <laughs> see, that's very different, isn't it? Do you see how this authority, and as we marvel at the, the description of this authority, how it enables a bold and faithful obedience to this commission. Thirdly, we're doing this little exercise to note, this is the title Jesus used for himself more than any other, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. We'll have to wait for perhaps a verse-by-verse exposition of Daniel, because there's no way I'd try to do it in 12 weeks on a Wednesday anyway, to really dive in to this title, the Son of Man. It would take the rest of the day, and then some, and next week. But we'll get a flavor for it this morning, just a bit. This is what Jesus called himself. Other people in the scriptures called him the Christ, the Messiah, the Alpha and the Omega, right? But he most frequently referred to his, refers to himself as the Son of Man. I mean, he used it at his trial to, if you will, incriminate himself before Caiaphas, the high priest, who's essentially like the Supreme Court judge. The, 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 the what is it? What's the Pupa? King Pupa? What is it? Grand Pupa. It's fun to say. Jesus never used the title Messiah for himself. When Peter called him the Christ in Mark 8, Jesus strictly forbids him to say so to others. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. Shh, don't tell anybody. (laughs) What? Don't we all scratch our heads at that? Why? Why would he do that? It's really simple. Their idea of the Christ was a king who would conquer by force. Kings on earth conquer by force all the time. Their reign lasts for a little while, and it eventually fades. But the Son of Man, his reign is eternal and accomplished not by force, but by sacrifice. Peter didn't understand this. And so he would have gone around telling everybody, I found him. I found the warrior king. If anyone falls in battle, he can just raise you from the dead. I've watched him heal all kinds of stuff. No one can stop us. Let's go get him. And Jesus said, just be quiet for a, just, just be quiet for a little while, Peter. Okay, you don't get it yet. So when Jesus asked, or so when asked, Jesus said, I'm not the Messiah that you're looking for, in essence, but I am the Son of Man the Father promised. Not the Messiah you're looking for, like Batman. Not the hero that they need or they want, but they need them the hero they need, or however it goes. Let's just read the words of Jesus The high priest said to him, I I adjure you by the living God. Meaning, put your hand on the Bible, right? Raise your right hand. 
tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Clearly Jesus was saying something here, right? Jesus was saying, I am the Son of Man of Daniel's prophecy. It's all inferred in a first century Jewish interaction. We have to fill in the blanks because we're not first century Jews. Since Daniel's vision, the Jews would be anticipating this son of man. They looked for, longed for, and hoped to initiate his arrival as they rebelled against Rome under would-be messiahs before Jesus. Nations rise and fall, and the Old Testament Israelites were preparing for a kingdom initiated by a messiah a son of man that would cover the earth and have unchallenged authority. This promise would have seemed too grand on Daniel's day. Not only was Israel not conquering the world, but they were being conquered again and again. Ever since the death of Solomon and the, and the dividing of Israel into two rival nations, they were marching backwards on the geopolitical map. This conquering king of the Jews whose reign knows no boundaries described in Daniel's vision seemed like the furthest thing or was the furthest thing from reality. And so as they waited, they prepared. In fact, how did they prepare? I get this sense from Daniel. Skip to the end of the chapter, the last verse. Verse 28 Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, <laughs> my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, so he was scared to death. But I kept the matter in my heart. I kept the matter in my heart. And so we note, the people of old covenant Israel prepared for Messiah's arrival like Daniel. They kept the matter in their hearts, always longing, waiting, preparing for more than 500 years after this vision is recorded, always believing in spite of all the physical evidence around them to dissuade them. So say what you will about the first century Jews who misunderstood their own prophecies and crucified their Messiah they kept the matter in their hearts with a, a, a dogged determination. You might even say they were stiff-necked about holding on to a confidence that this Messiah was coming. A stubbornness seemingly born into their bloodline. A stubbornness that often kept them from God, but in this case, a stubbornness that kept the promise of God in their hearts, always believing always believing. They would compel the people to righteous living in anticipation. They had a determination to safeguard this promise and they even crucified the wrong man in defense of it. Such was the plan of God. 
Israel prepared for Messiah. Let's consider secondly, number two, the, the church preparing for Messiah's return. The church preparing for Messiah's return. As we turn the page, if you will, from the old covenant to the new, the church begins to build on this tradition of preparation and anticipation. We marvel at the words that Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Or I should say, my kingdom is not from the world. No, Jesus' kingdom is portrayed by Daniel as a rock in Daniel chapter 2, flung from heaven, uncut by human hands, not of human origin, that covers the whole earth. It, it is flung and it destroys the kingdoms of the earth and it grows to a mountain that covers the whole of it. By this, Jesus was declaring three things. Number one, his pre-existence. Jesus was declaring his pre-existence. Listen to this from John 3, 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Anyone listening at that time would have equated those words with Daniel's vision. Jesus was saying, I am the co-eternal figured in Daniel's vision. I was not born 30 years ago. I am outside of time. And yet, I am man. While you and I had an inception date and we celebrate it on our birthdays, Jesus does not. We celebrate the incarnation on December 25th, but he existed before that, even before Daniel saw him. For he is God. He existed from eternity. Jesus was declaring his own pre-existence when he calls himself the Son of Man. Secondly, Jesus was teaching that the Son of Man, the conquering king, with all authority, must suffer. In fact, for, for, our, for our, our time here, let's just flip over to John chapter 3 and just read this together. Three parts, three statements that Jesus was making about himself while making direct reference to Daniel chapter 3. Seven. So firstly, in John 3, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He was preaching on his pre-existence. Then he says, and, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus was teaching that this conquering king, this Daniel 7 son of man who is given dominion and authority must suffer. Nothing in Daniel 7 indicates this son of man would suffer. But Jesus understood this and taught that this was the role he was to fill. The Son of Man is awarded this dominion from the ancient of days by marching through the waters of death, even death on a cross. 
Thirdly, Jesus uses this title, the Son of Man, to indicate that eternal salvation hinges on belief. That whosoever, verse 15, believes in him may have eternal life. The Son of Man, lifted up on the cross of Calvary. Jesus' contemporaries had a hard time with this. Their idea of salvation through the Messiah was political in nature. You might remember on Palm Sunday, they sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, as Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem, the classic Hebrew symbol for the initiation of a new king. They sang, Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? It means save us. Save us. They're literally crying out for salvation. And as Jesus allows himself to be arrested, bound, and carried away by a mob in the Garden of Gethsemane, the hopes for salvation were seemingly being crushed right before their very eyes. The disciples so eager to usher in the reign of Jesus that they asked, Jesus, shall we call down fire from heaven and destroy these heathens? (laughs) Let's get this kingdom going. You know what I'm saying? So eager they were to usher in the kingdom. Let's slice off some ears. Let's call down some fire. They all scattered. They were bewildered as Jesus is marched off into the darkness the night before he was to be crucified. Peter followed, but denied knowing him. Why? Because their political notions of a conquering Messiah were being dismantled as they watched and as they fled. Only after his resurrection did the disciples come to understand that Jesus claims his throne by love, sacrifice, and mercy, not by force, coercion, threats, or political maneuvers. Jesus' instructions to Peter and others to tell no one would be changed to tell everyone, now that you get it, now that you understand. Because now they finally do understand that the Son of Man will usher in his kingdom by forgiving man, not by conquering him. And in doing so, he conquers Satan, sin, and death. If that were enough, if we were simply living in an age of promise, of grace, of confidence that death has no sting... To a degree, we might say, that is enough. Jesus has won. The kingdoms of this earth rise and fall. Tyrants rise and fall. No one has unlocked the secret to death. Try as they might. Have you, have you heard about the newest thing that, that they're doing in order to essentially enact a sense of immortality? They have decided to to download the the memories of a human being onto a computer so that 
so that a, a visual representation of that human being can be interacted with after their death, like a conversation, all through artificial intelligence, right? Why would they, what's the point, right? Whatever happened to, look at this picture of my grandma on Christmas Day. I think I peed my pants that night, you know, like, like that's, but why isn't that good enough? And what are they doing? They're trying to, to, to stop the one thing that they cannot seem to solve, the problem of death. Well, we've called, we've, uh, we've conquered it in Christ. We're not afraid. And so that would be enough, but the story doesn't end there. While Jesus is the rock flung from heaven, destroying human kingdoms and establishing his spiritual kingdom, that's only the first part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Remember, in I think every single prophecy, at minimum, most prophecy in the Bible, there is a near and a far. There's an immediate and a far fulfillment. The kingdom of Jesus' church undermines the powers of this world right now. Human governments can arrest us, but they can't stop us from pe- praying and singing. I mean, we read of Paul in Acts chapter 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Where were they? They were in jail. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was an earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors <laughs> flung open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened, and the guards freaked out, you know? They can arrest us. They can't stop us praying. They can outlaw Christianity, and yet the Spirit will give boldness. We can read right now about North Korean churches that that every Sunday they travel out into the wilderness down by a river, and they dig up the one copy of the scriptures that they have. And they sing muted worship songs together, allowing the running water to cover the sound of their voices. And they secretly hold church. (laughs) You can outlaw Christianity, but the Spirit will give boldness. Militant Islam can attempt to conquer the world. That is their manifesto. But yet, young men will keep having visions and converting to Christianity anyway. You can read about it. In fact, if you get my notes, I link to an article that talks all about this. Muslim imams are freaking out because young Muslim men are waking up and having visions, having spoken to Jesus, and they're, they're running to the nearest Christian that they can find. You say, God doesn't do that anymore, or, you know, I'm a classic cessationist or whatever. Hey, pfft, look, okay? They're having visions, and they're coming to Christ. You take it up with Jesus, you know what I mean? And yet, as marvelous as all of that is, this is not even the end. It's not the fullness of what is to come. The Apostle John records these final words, Jesus speaking in Revelation chapter 22. Nearly the very last verse of the entire Bible, Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And the angel declared to the disciples, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And he will return. This is not the end. This is the near. There is still yet the far. 
as exciting and as certain as, that, as this all is, the question, of course, is how we prepare for his arrival. So let's wrap it up here because we're out of time with a bit of application. How do we prepare? Israel prepared. The church is compelled to prepare for this future advent, even as we revel in the victory of Jesus today. How do we prepare actively for his advent? Well, like Daniel, I would compel us, I would urge us to keep these things in our hearts. Keep them. If you're, uh, if you're following along in the little Advent devotional that we've been championing, if you managed to get a copy, uh, apparently they sold out fast, you would have read this yesterday. This is the third part of what's known as the Athanasian Creed. Thinking caps, okay, stick with me. Now this is the true faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is man from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one man is both rational soul and flesh, that's you and me, right? So too the one Christ is both God and man. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Friends, learning, reading, reciting, knowing statements like that is how we keep these things in our hearts, like Daniel's prophecy. It is a tragedy that most of us, myself included, haven't read the Athanasian Creed before, in my case, about a month ago, and maybe in yours a day ago or just now, right? What a tragedy. Why? Because these statements give teeth to the whole counsel of Scripture that speaks to the grandeur of who he is and what is to come. This is how we keep these things in our hearts. We believe, we believe, we believe. So stated the creeds of the church fathers, repeated by the faithful. We must carry on this tradition, by stating and memorizing and holding fast to these statements, we are keeping them in our hearts like Daniel in the face of any and all external evidence. To the contrary, we believe. Secondly, I believe we prepare for Jesus' second advent by setting our gaze on the person of Jesus Christ. 
And my wife has adopted a, a, a disciplinary line in our home with our children. It is, um, if I don't have your eyes, I don't have your heart. Mom and dad, you might get that. You want to try and connect with your child and speak to them about some important matter while they're doing this, right? No, if you don't have their eyes, look at me, they would say. And so too, the apostles, when they would approach a man who's begging, he would say, look at me. We are compelled to fix our gaze on the person of Jesus. And how do we do that? Well, here we go, Hebrews chapter one. Let's just take this in as a moment of worship. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Fix our eyes on that man, right? Marvel at the word in the word, live in the word, stay in the word, get in the word. When I was in Bible college, we had to make our beds every day, and I didn't like that, so I hung like a sheet from the top bunk down to the lower bunk, and I attempted to get away with not making my bed every morning by just kind of like drawing the curtain, and to just put a little like pin on it, a cherry on top, I drew a big sign, and I, I taped it up on that curtain, and it said, the word. So if you ever wanted to know what I was doing, I'm in the Word. You know what I mean? That's a stupid Bible college joke. All right. We want to get in the Word. We want to stay in the Word. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus by ingesting the Word and meditating on the Word, worshiping at the Word. Read it out loud over yourself and over your wife, over your children. Prepare your heart and mind for the kingdom to come not simply to exist in this one. Thirdly, I believe we prepare for Jesus' second advent by proclaiming a complete salvation message that does not abandon the consequence of rebellious man. Prepare for his second coming by proclaiming a complete message that does not abandon the consequence of rebellious man. The last bit of the Athanasian Creed that we just read, part three, says, At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter fire. A gospel devoid of the law of God that convicts is cheap and hollow and incomplete. MacArthur says, we have no business preaching grace to people who do not understand the implications of God's law. And so I implore you, friend, do not back down nor be embarrassed by the truth of the gospel. Man is a rebel against God, a rebel against his own conscience. Our own sin condemns us, but the Son of Man has made a way. And he calls his believers 
his subjects. He calls us his friend. So preach the whole gospel. Well, I'll leave you with this. Number one, a spiritual kingdom has spiritual standards. Number two, a spiritual kingdom has spiritual members. Number three, a spiritual kingdom has a spiritual location. Spiritual standards, spiritual members, a spiritual location. I implore you not to cling so tightly to this world or what might be accomplished in it. Vote for the lesser of two evils. Advocate for life. Invest in the future generations of the church. But never see the next election or Supreme Court appointee as the hope of reclaiming the world for Christ. He will claim all that are his, and his rule is already over all. I'll leave you with this from the late R.C. Sproul. Jesus' kingship is not something that remains in the future. Christ is king right this minute. So let's live like it. Let's celebrate it for, unlike the plans of mice and men, God's plans cannot go awry. Yeah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. You've given to us your word. You've safeguarded and preserved it. And by this down payment of the Holy Spirit in us, you have given to us a confidence and a boldness and reason for it that what we believe is genuine, supernatural, and is yet to see its final form. May we revel in what you have accomplished. May we live as though the best is yet to come. In Christ's name, amen.